All right, so we are beginning with uh, translation part two. Um, it's we've kind of gone about it a little bit informally, uh, filling in the gaps, but hopefully, uh, even with informality, this will be informative. Uh, wow, that just happened in my head. Uh, what? Um, if anyone here uh, needs, um, you know, like there's a string of degrees or whatever that this guy is uh, legit standing up here talking about grammar. My mug says, the past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. So I'm legit people. Only super nerds drink from mugs like this. So we're good. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm not going to share my coffee, but you can wash them. Yes, you can wash my mug and you're welcome to take a drink. Partake together. So uh, I want to ask you, uh, what comes to mind when you think of a vulture? Ravenous. Ravenous. Yeah. Death. Blood scavenger. Blood scavenger. Yeah. Nasty stuff. What's that? You said lawyers. Oh, lawyers. Okay. <laughs> Entering the realm of the metaphorical, and that's just fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of an eagle? Soaring, Soaring majestic. Noble, America. Noble, America. Mm-hmm. What's that? Do they scavenge a lot? Or? Oh, interesting. Okay. So uh, evidently, eagles will scavenge, uh, like in Alaska, when there are a lot of fish uh, lying around after the fishermen go through. That's not what we think about, absolutely. And that's kind of the point of what I'm about to say here. So um, we've got kind of a nasty, wrinkly redhead on a bird that eats dead animals, EU. Um, then we've got a majestic, powerful, sharp hunter uh, with a beautiful white head, awesome. Um, but in the ancient world, uh, the Greeks had one word for uh, a huge bird with large talons. That was Napoleon Dynamite, for those who wanted to know. Um, but this one word was atos. And they just, they really, the way that they formed their category in their mind was large bird. I'm, I'm guessing. I, I didn't talk to any ancient Greeks about this, but it just, it strikes me that they're probably thinking large birds uh, will tear things apart, meat eating, all these things. Uh, so it would be something like, the atos versus the sparrow. You know, sparrows over here, definitely not an atos. So in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, Jesus is giving his disciples some insight uh, as to the end of the age or when will all of these things happen? You know, the disciples are asking, like, when's God's judgment going to come? And in each place he says slightly different things, but... Um, the memorable image from what Jesus says is, where there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So, why am I saying eagles and vultures? Well, because the symbol for Rome was the eagle, and it was a noble bird. Now, probably, this is another thing that helps make the difference. Uh, they didn't really have bald eagles in Europe, I don't think, 2,000 years ago. It was more of a golden eagle, and so color and things like that aren't really important, again, when they're thinking of these categories of what this bird is. Uh, and so when Jesus 
says, there the atoy will gather, the sharp listener is going to think, huh, is he talking about the ruling elite in Jerusalem, the temple, um, the people in charge of the temple and things like that? They're the carcass and the vultures or the, the birds of prey or whatever are going to gather. Uh, and he says, this definitely points toward Rome coming in in 66 to 70 AD. Uh, that's clear. Uh, but Jesus had already been talking about the deadness, the corpse-likeness of the temple elite, the, the teachers of the law, the elders, the, the rulers of the people. And so all of this stuff comes together in a really neat image. So the point behind this, talking about translation, um, is how do we translate that word? Now, before we get to that, let's take this one step deeper. Um, Jesus probably taught the people out in the villages in what scholars call Aramaic. That's a whole other thing. Um, the New Testament uses the word Hebraos, the, the Hebrew language. Um, but if you're looking from a linguistic perspective, it was Aramaic. It was the language of the Eastern Mediterranean area. Everybody spoke it, uh, or it's at least some form of it. Um, I liken it to speaking English. I mean, if, if I want to be proud of my heritage, I'm going to be like, I speak American. I don't speak English. But we all say English, and we're all proud of it. It's all fine. Now the whole world wants to speak English, and actually probably does. Um, so leaving aside Aramaic versus Hebrew, we'll just call it Aramaic, um, Jesus probably was speaking in that language, and down here in this deserty, wildernessy sort of area, they actually had several different words uh, for these kind of birds. Um, in Deuteronomy, there's you know the, the, the brown vulture, the black vulture, the big nasty vulture, and so on. I'm making all that up. But anyway, there are several different words that are used, Hebrew words, that English translators have to be like, ah, we think it means this, and we think it means that. But clearly, they're all like birds of prey, raptors, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, and so I'm wondering, this is completely conjecture, I'm going to be upfront about this. I'm wondering if Jesus used uh, a particular word that was vultures, because that's what comes and eats carcasses. Um, but then when it gets into Greek, there's only one real word for giant birds with large talons. I just like saying that. Um, and it's atos. So there's a, I have a, a thing I call found in translation. You know, there's that common uh, lost in translation thing. But we can find things in translation too. Another example would be um, when Jesus talks about uh, the martyrs. He says from Abel all the way down to Zechariah. And I'm thinking, wow, A to Z, that's really cool. It's kind of like Alpha and Omega. But see, I just gave the lie to the A to Z thing, because Alpha and Omega in the Greek alphabet means A to Z. Like, that's literally how you should translate it, uh, from A to Z. And Zechariah starts with a Zeta, which is like the sixth or eighth letter of the alphabet. So that's something that's found in translation. When we, in English, say from Abel down to Zechariah, and we associate A to Z, that's just kind of a gift for us. It's not there. There's no reason to think that. 
but it's something that helps us remember. That's really cool. Um, so that's kind of what happens here, I think, uh, when Jesus probably had a specific word for vultures, but when it comes into Greek, wow, it takes on a, a much richer life where when the gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean world in Greek, you know, so they were probably spoken, the gospels were, some of them, Matthew especially, were probably spoken in Aramaic in the communities of Jesus right there through Israel. And they were finally written down, and as these gospels spread around the Roman Empire, lots of people spoke Greek, most people spoke Greek, and they probably saw that image of where there's a dead body, Rome is going to gather. So, now we get to the complication for Bible translators, which is, uh, it can mean eagle, it can mean vulture. In America especially, you know, Chris mentioned that uh, in Alaska, the Alaskan fishermen will say that uh, the eagles will eat dead animals. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, but we, oh, come and take their fish. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, but in the American mind, eagles are the noble hunters who are going to go and uh, use their superior everything to capture their prey. And so Bible translators can't say eagles there, and they can't catch that image of the Roman eagle. So they have to do the very best that they can, and that is say, where there's a carcass, their vultures will gather. So I hope that example gives you uh, just a little bit of appreciation for the challenge for Bible translators. Another one, well, I want to do a little grammar thing here real quick. Um, and if anybody speaks French in here, I am so sorry. Just forgive me, that's all I can say. Um, but I'm using Duolingo, I'm trying to learn French. Um, anyway, if you want to do a, a really literal, I'm going to use air quotes on that word, uh, way of rendering this French sentence. Um, this is just in the app and I took a screenshot. You know, in English, what they want you to think is, why did you stop here? But the way I understand it would be, for what is this that you to yourself are stopping here? And that's just how they say it. You know what they think when you say that to them? They think, why did you stop here? So when we have people who claim that we have to translate things literally, what they're saying is, don't translate. Does that make sense? We'll let that sink in. Let's translate literally means let's not translate. Um, here's another word uh, from Hebrew, um, tzedakah. It's really complex, um, but the basic meaning, the way that I've heard people explain it is uh, being faithful to a covenant. So God is righteous. That, that's the English translation of Zedekah is um, righteousness. God is righteous because he made the covenant and he's keeping the covenant. We are righteous if we keep the covenant. Fairly simple. But because of how culture has added things on, um, we tend to think of righteousness as something like really super good maybe morally pure or something like that. It makes us think of behavior, like he doesn't do bad stuff, he's righteous. Um, but there's another part of this Hebrew word and it can be rendered justice. 
Funny enough, another culture, Latin American culture, big picture, I know that there are many cultures within Latin America, but in, the, in Spanish, in Latin America, because of their history of a lot of oppression, a lot of colonialism, um, justice is a really huge deal. And with the development of liberation theology, where it's not just about liberation from sin, it's liberation from oppression. Uh, it's about making governmental structures that uh, work for the people. Now, we won't even go into all the stuff about how has it worked out, because it hasn't. There's been a lot of corruption and things like that, but um, generally it hasn't worked out. But the Spanish, most Spanish translations translate tzedakah, justice. Most English translations translate it righteousness. So, yes. Oh, tzedakah. Yeah, the transliteration would be like T-S-E-D-A-Q-A-H. Let's just go with righteousness. I mean, we're done today. I'm just going to do this more coffee. Um, so, do you see culture sitting in our translations? It was probably around, let's see, around 1000 uh, AD, there was a monk scholar named Anselm, and he was the one who started to tip the, uh, oh, what's the right word? Uh, what does it mean to do atonement? He tipped it from, you know, Jesus having victory uh, over evil and over all the powers. He started to tip it toward Atonement is making up for bad things that have happened. And so over the years, that started to take hold, and suddenly you've got, for the accountants in here, um, you know, basically it's an Excel spreadsheet. Like, this is the bad thing you did, and here's the penance that you do, like this many Hail Marys or whatever. Um, and then that's what uh, Martin Luther and the others, John Calvin, um, when they realized it's not about the offense and the penance, offense, penance. Like, this is what religion, this is what Christianity was all about in the Middle Ages. Um, you can see where this offense and penance thing led toward this idea of righteousness being moral purity. Because they could read the Bible and whether the word was righteousness there, a lot of the time it could be taken as moral purity or uh, not doing bad things. And so culture over a thousand years leads to righteousness, the translation of the Hebrew tzedakah, meaning uh, the way that we behave. Whereas the culture, as I mentioned in Latin America, points really strongly toward uh, this word having to do with justice. Now, funny enough, uh, Deuteronomy 6.25 um, for those who are keeping score at home. It says, and this is a, a father talking to his son. His son's asking about, why do we talk about all these commands and decrees and laws all the time? And the father's explaining to his son, uh, this is who we are, this is how we live. And if we are careful to obey all this law before Yahweh our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. <laughs> That's a perfect sound. 
Sorry, I didn't, I didn't put up that screen that said, Please silence your cell phone. Wait, did I silence my cell phone? I'm recording on this thing. Um, so it's, uh, if we obey this covenant, the covenant that God made with us, if we show ourselves to be part of this covenant relationship in good standing, that's our righteousness. That's what the Father is telling his Son. Um, it's not that uh, if we are careful to obey all this law, it's going to be like political and economic justice. It's not if we obey all this law before the Lord that it's us being morally pure. It's actually pointing toward obeying the covenant. And guess what's included in obeying the covenant? Moral purity, not doing bad stuff, not mistreating your neighbors, doing justice. So really what we've got here is a, a larger category. If we see this as keeping the covenant, what's included in the covenant? Righteousness and justice. So uh, my, my mind started to take off in another direction there. But we can unite these two words and try to fill the English word righteousness with that meaning. So the little rabbit trail that uh, came to mind was uh, words like baptize, baptism. This wasn't a word in most of the languages like English in the 800s, 1000, 12, 1480. Uh, so they were like, I don't know, let's just take this Greek word baptizo, seriously, baptizo, and translate it baptize. <laughs> Easy enough, right? So that's not translation, that's transliteration. It's using the, the letters from the original language and putting them into the target language. And that way, you can fill the word with the, the meaning that makes the most sense. So it leads to the baptism wars of, oh, you weren't fully made wet underwater, immersed? Then I guess you may not be saved. You need to be rebaptized. Um, oh, you were sprinkled? Well, we associate that with those heretics over there. So come on over here. We'll, we'll get it to you for real this time. Um, when really the point is that you're immersed into the community of Jesus. You know, however it works, it's fine. But I know that there are some people out there who uh, are very, very, very serious about baptism in the right way, in the right place, with the right words, and so on. Uh, but that's just uh, another uh, thing about the challenge for translators. Um, they could have said, um, Jesus went outside Jerusalem to the Jordan to be immersed. Why not? That's a good translation of baptizo. Uh, they, Jesus went out from Jerusalem to the Jordan to be sprinkled. Why not? That works too. Like Those are legitimate translations of the word baptizo. But for a long, long time in English, we've just said baptize. So you're making kind of a political statement when you lock in your word for baptize, right? When you when you say whether it's immersion or sprinkling. So uh, this is on the, the translation side. Uh, I, I talked to several people to uh, kind of get an idea of what do we want to talk about today? What are the burning questions? Um, what, there's another thought on the receiving end of a, a translation, which is uh, uncluttered reading. Um, when we read the Bible with uh, all the additives like 
subject headings, chapter numbers, verse numbers, and so on, uh, footnotes at the bottom of the page, it makes the Bible look like something that it's really not. It makes it look like an academic textbook, for one thing. For another thing, it may make it look like a, a law code. You know, how many of you have a 401k? That's actually what we're talking about here. Like, 3 colon 16. We're talking about a line in the law code um, that, you know, you're a 501c3. Oh, cool. It's the way that we locate things in a really complex book or legal code. Uh, and we've got it in our Bibles. Why? It helps. It helps for scholars to reference things. It helps for us to find things quickly. But there are better ways for us to find things, and that's probably, um, a friend talks about, referring to things by content and context. So an ideal way to access uh, a scripture passage might be um, when Jesus was uh, talking to the woman at the well, this is in the Gospel of John, right after he talks to Nicodemus. That's a pretty good way to do it, toward the beginning of the Gospel. So if people are trying to page their way there, they see Nicodemus in chapter 3, they get to chapter 4, oh yeah, there's the woman at the well. So there are different ways of doing this. Um, and a lot of it, um, you know, for people it just sounds hard to do it that way. But you know why it sounds hard? Because you don't know your Bible very well. I'll include myself in that. This is a, all of us don't know our Bibles very well. Um, so after 10 years of referring to scripture passages by content and context, what do you think is going to happen? You're probably going to know your Bible really, really well. Way better than everybody else. That's pretty cool. It's just kind of painful at the start. So I throw that out there as... Uh, something that is valuable is to read the Bible in a format that's uncluttered. And we have an example of that on the table. Um, the real point of the handout on the table is different kinds of translations. And I'll just say a couple things briefly uh, about this. Um, someone had mentioned to me the Amplified. Uh, you know, is it a good translation? Is it helpful? Is it useful in any way? And uh, I put it here, Psalm 23, something that we all kind of have nestled into our hearts in some way, uh, and I've compared it with the NASB, you know, the classic literal translation, uh, the one that might use something closer to Greek and Hebrew grammar uh, to be more, again, air quotes, faithful to the text. Um, so, and then things like the NL, NIV and the NLT, those emphasize natural language, um, trying to tie closely to the original, the meaning of the original, and transferring the meaning into the target language, but also speaking English. And then the last one there is the message. That uh, really emphasizes the kind of the culture, the, the idioms, the, the sayings that we use uh, in our current language. So. Um, just to recap that, the Amplified emphasizes the dictionary. It, it uses a lot of different words. It amplifies things to make sure that we don't lose the meaning. The New American Standard emphasizes grammar uh, in some ways. Um, the NIV, the NLT, they emphasize the natural language. And then something like the message emphasizes kind of just everyday, street-level kind of idiomatic meaning. So what I'd like for us to do is to take a few minutes um, and talk through this, uh, just 
you can read silently, you can read aloud, and discuss how these things, uh, kind of the way that the different uh, translations have a different emphasis. Yeah, what were you saying? Oh, yeah, he says, how do you find the 23rd Psalm if it's not numbered? Um, that's a really funny thing, because the Psalms are the one place where the numbers belong. Psalm 23, it is the 23rd Psalm. Um, but I think you're getting at this question of chapter numbers. Um, that's a more complicated topic. Maybe someday we can talk about how do we navigate the Bible in that way. Um, but let's go ahead and look here at Psalm 23. We'll take probably 10 minutes to, to talk about it. And I should say I love that one uh -huh. Oh, interesting. Good. Thank you. All right, everybody. Uh, let's come back to the large group. This has been a really fun time. I think we have a lot more discussing that we could do at our table, and I'm sure you can as well. I don't know, maybe sometime we can, like once every couple of months or every quarter or something, we pick a passage and do something like this. But I think it's uh, been really fun. Uh, any insights that anybody wants to share? The microphone will come to you. Sue. I just really don't like the message, I guess. And I think it's because it really takes, it takes away a lot of the poetry and It's just been so refreshing in the New Testament. 
Having said that, I said to our group, I struggle with it in the Psalms yeah. because I think of the poetry aspect. I like reading a different version a lot of times right. because you get a different, you get a different slant when you read different versions of a text. Right. It gives you a different slant, and then you, like you said, you can kind of see okay, which one makes more sense. Or what does it add? Yeah, to exactly. What does it add to it? Yeah. You know, like not like what's better than the other, but right. it's more more depth to. <laughs> so Linda is very articulate and says really important things very quickly. So she's talking about reading bigger, uh, reading several translations uh, gives more depth to what you might have understood before. So where I come from, I hear sermons preach from different versions. So I don't have to compare like NLT, NIV, ESV, CEB. NRSV, the list goes on, yeah. just to make sure I can get the context right. Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, yeah. Jeff, do you want to say the thing that you said that was awesome? Uh, well, I was simply saying that I'm used to hearing things like an, an NASB. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then going to the message, I really understand, Sue, what you're saying in a sense of feeling like I'm not quite sure how this fits, but at the same time, when I read it in the message, you've bedded me down in much matters you find me quiet pools to drink from. Uh, and it goes on, you let me catch my breath. And for me, as someone who is a, a backpacker that has been out and trying to, in a sense, survive in situations, it, it just seems to make it so much more rich and personal. Uh, and assuming that that was cool with Yeah, and then uh, with the surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, I'm used to even hearing Keith Green sing that, you know, and it's, so it's very familiar. But then when you go over to the message and to the NLT, surely your goodness and family and love will pursue me. That seems so much more Wow, Lord, you really love me. You're after me. You want me to be with you. It seems so, I, I'm something I really desire. And, you know, as opposed to being followed, you're pursuing, you're like the uh, father coming after the prodigal son, you know, that love that was displayed. Awesome. Thank you. See, Jeff, uh, he didn't uh, tell us that thing about the backpacker at the beginning, so. That was a, a, a double portion, a heaping and a running over, which is awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit more about, well, Lisa asked, if we find value in reading the Bible like this, or what Keenan said, knowing all kinds of different translations, um, what, what is a recommendation for how to study this way? Uh, and I think... One, one idea is find a translation that's, you know, we called it the literal or the word-for-word -word kind of thing. The KJV, the ESV, the NASB, um, and those are a little bit more rigid. Um, those will help you to see some kind of structural things uh, in the passage. You can pick up something like the message or the voice uh, that's a lot more kind of colloquial 
that kind of speaks the English at a really low, I don't want to say low level, but it's not high street English. It's very uh, idiomatic and colloquial. Um, and then somewhere in the middle, things like maybe the NRSV, the NIV, the NLT, um, those are all, those all work really hard to find the balance. So I, I make the image of here's the original language and translators have to bring it up so that it's the meaning. It's the stuff that's like sitting in your mind and your heart. Like it's the getting of what the words mean. Um, so you kind of get it to where you feel it and then realizing that that, that meaning, that feeling happens in a thought world. So um, the Hebrew language is built on a lot of uh, agrarian sort of metaphors. You know, there's it's crops, it's sheep. Um, it's a very earthy language. The idioms that they use are uh, really earthy. And we may not have that quite so much these days. We still have a lot of idioms in American English uh, that come from uh, horse and buggy kind of stuff. Um, you know, correct. But what? But more baseball. But more baseball. Yeah, actually, that, that's really true. But like cracking the whip. You know, this is you know making the horse go faster or whatever. Uh, so that we still have a lot of these agrarian metaphors or idioms in our language today. But I don't think it's so much as it was for Hebrew culture. So what translators have to do, the immensely hard work, is to transfer that meaning from that thought world over to something that makes sense in modern American English. Uh, or as the NIV tries to do, I mean, they're explicit that they want it to be global English. So they have to take into account India, Africa, uh, you know, some parts of Africa, England, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. That just takes it to a whole other level. We're trying to make sure that something makes sense in a, a smaller context on the other side of the world. Um, but then once you get it over here into this, the meaning, the, the, the stuff that you feel and know inside you in an English thought world, then you have to draft it. You have to compose it into English. So I've painted a pretty bleak picture maybe for the, the every person who's sitting down and trying to understand God's word. Sorry for that. Uh, but here's some encouragement. Um, so I wanted to say, I think it was probably Catholicism that in the Middle Ages and maybe a little bit earlier that really wanted to emphasize keeping the faith pure. Uh, don't let the peasants... Uh, do anything with scripture because they're just going to get it wrong. Um, so it's the it's the doctors, you know, the uh, the theologians, it's the pope, it's the priests to some degree who hold the truth. They have the doctrines and dogmas, and the rest of you all just show up for the Eucharist, uh, come to mass, um, so that you can make sure that you're in if you die. Um, and I know that's a perversion of. It's a lot deeper than that, but I'm just uh, painting a really slim picture of it. Um, so when the reformers came along, they emphasized the priesthood of all believers. Like, this was a thing. Remember, all the way back in Exodus, uh, God calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What are these people supposed to do? They're supposed to be there for the whole rest of the world to come 
and meet God. And guess what? Those people become priests too because they're now part of the holy nation. So that's what the body of Jesus is. Uh, in First Peter it talks about, what? Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's us. That's, that's Israel. That's the church. That's all of us together following Jesus. We are this kingdom of priests. And so every believer in Jesus, priest. Straight up. Doesn't matter if you're a peasant in medieval Europe, you're a priest. Um, and that's what the reformers were trying to get at. But it was this priesthood of believers with the, the individualism of the Renaissance, you know, like, I can think for myself. I'm not reliant on uh, the church to tell me what to do. And, um, you know, think of uh, that one guy, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Because he has the capability of thinking, he is therefore an individual, and he doesn't have to fit into a community. There was this individualism that started to rise up, and it led to the idea that anyone and everyone can take the Bible and do the right thing with it. Which, I don't know, anybody think that that might not be exactly true? Um, it's sort of true. But in order to get there, you have to strip away all of the context. And so there's the, kind of this pietistic individualism. I know that pietism uh, is a strong uh, movement that did some wonderful things, but part of it led to it's me with the text right here by myself, and I can get it. And so here's um, a, a word that's been used. It's the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, irony of ironies, what does perspicuity mean? Clearly expressed and easily understood. What? Perspicuity. Yeah, that's exactly right. Perspicuity is not perspicuous. Um, but that was a kind of a doctrine, if you want to say it that way, of the Bible for the reformers, was that the, the words of Scripture are clearly expressed and easily understood, so take your Bible and go sit down with it by yourself and don't... That's part of it. Yeah. So everything is based on scripture. Uh, scripture alone is our authority. Um, so scripture is clearly enough expressed and easily understood enough that we can base our life and faith and everything only on scripture. And I wholeheartedly believe that we should all be engaging scripture ourselves and within community. Uh, but when we strip away all that context, it leads to things like, Jesus, was he a Jew, really? Like, let's just strip everything away. Like, there, some theologians have talked about the scandal of particularity. Like, it is really scandalous that the creator of the universe is uh, coming and dealing with a small backwater confederation of tribes, and somehow they're the secret. They're the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Like, that's really scandalous. Like, shouldn't God be doing, shouldn't he be finding the people in charge who can disseminate the, the great stuff, you know, for everybody to get the right answers? No. He goes to this group who has been oppressed for more of its history than not, like way more of its history. It's been oppressed. It's been laughed at. It's been persecuted. It's been all kinds of awful things have happened to the original people of God who were carrying God's message. But what we need to do is we need to allow uh, 
this scandal of particularity to come back uh, because when you strip things down in the interest of making the Bible clearly expressed and easily understood, guess what you do? You make it not what it was supposed to be. So we need to have the courage to engage with that original context, which is what we do. Thank you, Roundtables. This is a wonderful place. Um, and as we see the story coming to its climax in Jesus, Jesus is the story. Um, the amazing thing is that God, in chasing us, as Jeff pointed out, God's following us, but no, he's actually pursuing us. We see all through, uh, the, all through scripture, whether it's in individual uh, stories or prophetic oracles, or if it's the big picture of what God always did, he is always chasing. He is always stooping. He's always coming down to the level of his people. Think parent to child. Uh, you see someone get down on a knee and it melts your heart. It's like, that's what God's doing for us. Is he going to try to punish us because we don't know a PhD or three and this or that thing of ancient Near Eastern one? No. God is going to engage with us where we are. So when we're reading the scripture and we see God in a, in a certain way there and our hearts are soft and we're pursuing him, guess what? He's right there with us. And he's not going to say, listen, you are so silly because you didn't know that such and such. Uh-uh. That's not our God. Our God is pursuing us and he's stooping to our level because he wants to pick us up and he wants us to be with him. So this is my encouragement to you. On the one hand, it's this picture of translation as an immensely complicated task. But on the other hand, because of the work of translators, we're able to engage God's word and we're able to seek him and find him. And he's able to chase us down because he loves us so much and he wants to restore us and he wants to put us in his family. So, again, what is the encouragement? Don't be discouraged when you think, ah, I don't know what's going on in scripture because God is right there and he wants to be with you and getting things exactly right, precise here, you know, a doctrine there, whatever, that's not the point. The point is the presence of God. Um, you know, there's the, the idea of speaking the truth in love God is love and God is truth. And we have tended to make it all about the truth and getting things exactly right. I think the bigger deal is love and truth is important. Um, so remember Paul's line, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Uh, if we feel bad that we don't understand this high context of scripture that we talked about, um, the other side of that coin is the people who brag about what they know and we don't want that. Uh, this big story of the Bible is God coming to us and loving us so deeply. So, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to uh, engage with your word. Uh, we thank you for Psalm 23. Uh, we thank you for the different translations that are out there that uh, people have given their lives, uh, the, their careers, to bringing your word to us in a way that we can understand. And so thank you for that gift. Thank you for those people's efforts. Um, and we ask that you will help us to understand your word and that we will feel your presence as you bend down, reach down uh, to show your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.